Okay, hi Karun, welcome to the Drivers Collective podcast. Um, uh, great to have you along today. No, um, thank you very much. Um, happy to pop down. Yeah, uh, I thought I'd straight away ask you about um, the uh, Vishnu Devananda Charitable Trust. Yeah. Um, because that seems quite important to you because you run uh, your karting carnival every year, and I'd just be interested to hear about the trust itself and yeah, sure. what, what work it does. Um, so the trust was formed uh, primarily by my mum, but basically by my parents, um, and my mum looks after it on a day-to-day basis. And you know, we come from a, a, a country um, where there are 1.2 billion people, um, and, and educating educating uh, a lot of kids in the in the sort of uh, lower classes economically, um, you know, is, is difficult for their parents. So, you know, we we thought that we would try and pitch in, um, and essentially the trust was formed to to try and give um, the the kids in the lower socioeconomic um, brackets uh, an opportunity to get a proper education and, and therefore give them a chance to get a leg up in life and get a you know job that pays them a reasonable amount of money and um, and hopefully make them uh, stand on their own two feet. Brilliant, yeah, because I, I, I think that's something um, it's very important that that sort of, especially in the developing regions um, because obviously, obviously Usman, you, you've got you're based in Pakistan and, and involved in sort of developing education there as well. Um, how do you feel the Indian? Because you're involved in the Indian motorsport scene. How do you see motorsport as as wealth increases in India um, develop? How is what is is the, is the, is what's the infrastructure like? Can it be improved? Um, the sport is. Um... <clears throat> In a tricky position at the moment, I think you know its absolute uh, peak of the interest was probably between 2010, 11, 12. You know, at the time we had two drivers in Formula One, we had um, the Grand Prix in, in Delhi, uh, and therefore around that there was a lot of interest in the sport. Uh, and you know, you had junior formulas where the grids were full. You had saloon car races where the grids were full. You had all sorts of things happening. Now that we haven't got any drivers on the grid and and also no Grand Prix, the interest has waned a little bit. Um, and what we now need to figure out is how do we get the domestic sport to really be able to drive, um, you know, get 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 competitors on the tracks. You know, do we? You know, you've, they've now got many, many more platforms to compete in than I had when I started. Um, you know, today you've got several national racing championships. You've got national karting, road tax carts and all sorts. So, um, and you've got kart tracks. You know, I never did a go-kart race in my life. So th- there are several opportunities now. But fundamentally, we need to find a way to get manufacturers to invest in the sport. And only if the manufacturers invest will the... Will the sport truly grow? I think um, you know we've seen that in, uh, to use your word, more developed markets in Europe and such. You know the sport grew because you had people like Ford and Audi and all these sort of people investing into the sport, um, and and I think that's what we need in India next. Do you have um, how is the development? Because I, I, you naturally assume that if you if you build something like karting then the rest will follow because you have to get the interest quite early on. Is is there 
a significant amount of development or investment into karting. I know you said Rotax are there and that that's probably bringing in a lot of interest, but is there an interest in building more circuits? Uh, I think I think there's a there's a tricky situation that went that happened probably let's say from mid 2000s so let's say between 2003 2002 maybe even early 2002 till about 2015 where the the cost of land grew, went up astronomically uh, all across the country you know people people were buying properties and then finding two years later it had doubled in value and things like that so while all of that was happening it was quite hard to convince somebody to use um, a piece of land even if it's four or five acres to build a go-kart track close to an urban area which is where you need it now i think you know the 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 land boom is sort of leveled off and i think you're seeing now um, you know, there's a track in Bangalore, there's a track in Hyderabad, there's a track in Kolhapur, uh, one in Coimbatore, and, and these are just the ones I mentioned are of, of an international standard or, or, or capable of running proper two-stroke racing. So we've got four now. Um, the race circuit in Madras, which was the first permanent circuit in the country, we now have three, one in Coimbatore, one in Delhi, obviously, which ran the Grand Prix. But the one in Madras has now had a huge amount of money spent on it. Um, there's been a massive upgrade. Uh, so it's now uh, runs to a grade two level um, and they're running, um, y- you know, various categories of cars and bikes there. Uh, they've just built uh, India's first bespoke drag strip as well. So we can really try and get drag racing in there. And that, that you know, is... It's a great way to get people off the streets and just get them driving in a safe environment and, you know, do Friday night drag meets or Saturday night drag meets and things like that. Um, and, and now, um, there are, you know, there's, they've, uh, you know, hopefully we can try and get motorsport back onto uh, people's maps because even from the media side, you know, the, the interest has sort of waned a little bit. And I think we, we need to collectively try and understand what, needs to happen and what can be done to get that sport back in at the forefront of people's minds Mm, i think um because of the european dominance of the karting scene i guess building indian talent um it is i I suppose because of the because karting is very european central if you if you aren't in that system quite early it's difficult to develop i guess in modern times as a you, driver you say that but um actually in the middle east the karting level is now very high hmm. uh, you look at places like dubai bahrain and abu dhabi and places like that uh, alain um you know they've they've all got actually very very good circuits um you know comparable with anywhere in the world really and if not better um and, and actually the level of talent coming there um, you know, a lot of European carters go there over the winter. A lot of uh, Middle Eastern carters are, are developing. So I, I do think that over the, you know, the the second, um, so no, not really second half, but let's say over the next five years, we're going to see more Middle Eastern drivers coming into the sport because their level has actually turned out to be very good. Yeah, it's increasing. And, and, and you do have the... Um the world championship goes to Bahrain and, and yeah. there's actually more 
I, I, I what I felt uh, personally was maybe the major events, the major cart events, could be a little bit more brave with where they go, especially with especially things like the Road Tax World Finals, where yes. they have a little bit more freedom to um, explore different countries. They they sort of became. Um, they went to America. They need to. Go. They went to America. I think New Orleans. They did Macau as well. They done Macau, um, but I think uh, something like the Rotax World Finals. They have the freedom to to maybe experiment and, and, and I know I know they went to Dubai, but maybe they could be a bit more adventurous. Um, one thing I wanted to speak to you about, um, which talking about uh, Bahrain is your debut in F1 with a HRT. Um, so I, I might be incorrect. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But your first time in the car was qualifying yes yeah like how do you deal with that <laughs> i mean what what uh, it just is what it is really you know you you at the end of the day those were the cars that we were dealt with you know the, you could either play them or you could walk away um i was never going to walk away <laughs> from, from an opportunity to race in formula one so um you know, you just you you just suck it up and you accept that it's a it's going to be a bit of a test session and you just sort of get on with it. Really, uh, we didn't. You know, unfortunately, the 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 whole thing came together quite late. You know, the, it, the original plan was for it to be a campus team, and then Adrian couldn't get the funding he needed and put the deal together, and then Colin Collis took it over and and got it up and running with some key people and we you know we, we wanted to do a shakedown in Italy we couldn't do that we tried to get the car built in time for free practice on Friday and Saturday morning but we couldn't do that uh, Bruno managed to get some laps in on Friday uh, on his car and again on Saturday morning but we struggled on mine um, and then uh, you know yeah there we were <laughs> got to qualify I, I loved it I remember watching it because it kind of for me that's kind of what motorsport's about to a certain degree is sometimes it all does come together a bit late in the day and it's not as perfect as you always want it to be I guess nowadays I think mo especially with F1 it's been so um, so streamlined now you don't really get those stories or opportunities don't seem to be there anymore so I sort of enjoyed yeah seeing guys go I'm gonna let's do it. You know? Yeah, no, I think I think I think F1 needs you know F1 needs small teams and big teams because there's there's that's part of the sport you know the underdogs and you know you think of the number of people who are fans of Minardi or Jordan um, even when they were down the back and uh, uh, you know that's just part of F1 you know you've got to have quirky teams and things that are a bit different you know not everyone can be Mercedes Ferrari or Red Bull. Um, and it's good to have a you know midfield battles, and it's good to have teams at the back, which give more importantly, the, most importantly, they give young drivers an opportunity to get on the grid. Hmm. Um, you know, now with twenty cars on the grid, there's a bottleneck. You know, there's a massive bottleneck with those six seats that that you know are missing now from having those twenty six cars on the grid. Um, you know, which we haven't had since '95. We had 24 at one point, but um, since 1995, we haven't had 26 cars on the grid, and we do miss that. You know, you see a lot of drivers in, um, you know, Formula Two and Super Formula in Japan and uh, Formula Three and categories of that who 
probably deserve an opportunity to be in Formula One, um, but the seats aren't there. Yeah, and, I, bit, yeah. and I think having those small teams uh, is important for that. Mm, because I think now more than ever, it seems to be the luck of when you come through and when you're racing and you don't miss the boat because you know as you said yeah. people stay in the seats and and of course if you decrease the number of seats and, and the demand well the turnover the is less isn't it you yeah. know and then and also you know you have to think that previously drivers had a shorter career because cars weren't as safe and they were worried about risk of injuries etc etc now the cars and the tracks are so safe you know drivers are able to go 15 18 years and mm. and therefore well it's great for them it's not great for for the next generation of drivers who are trying to knock on the door and get in the you know get in there yeah and that that brings me to like the the alternatives for drivers because obviously formula e is now part of the mix um and the formula e grid is is very competitive i think that's almost... well, the the quality of drivers is is very very high um you know i raced in the first season of the championship and um, you know, the, the quality of the field is very high because it's one of the last series where the drivers can earn a living out of it. You know, the, there's unfortunately the way the world works today, there's a very small percentage of drivers who are able to earn a living out of driving um, in sports cars or touring cars or GTs and things like that. Um, Formula E is one of those categories where drivers can earn a decent living out of it, and uh, and therefore it's become attractive for top line drivers outside of um, you know your top sports cars and top Formula One. Yeah, that's that's one thing about Formula E. If you leave any opinions about electric propulsion or whatever aside, you just look at the raw stats of the drivers, and it's just everybody's decent yeah no it's it's very very high quality uh the depth is very very good mm. and the new car seems to look quite cool you know there's a lot going for it you know it's sort of i don't think it'll ever take over f1 that people keep on saying because of the fia and liberty will never let that happen um but no and i don't think it should either no. uh, and i think people people need to to understand that everything can coexist you know there's Traditionally, if you look back on the history of the sport, there have been several verticals of the sport, right? You've had Formula 1 and its single-seater ladder, so GP2, F2, Formula 3, GP3, etc., etc. So that all falls under one uh, ladder of, shall we call it, European single-seater path to Formula 1. Then you've always had the sports car ladder, which has been, you know, prototypes racing at Le Mans. Uh, GT racing, uh, endurance racing, all that kind of stuff. You've got a separate ladder there. It's always coexisted alongside F1, and it always can and always will. You've got the touring car world, which has now got a mix of sort of pro-am racing, really. If you look at British touring cars, there's more amateurs than professionals nowadays. But, you know, it's sort of there um, as a next rung down the ladder. Um, you know, NASCAR is always coexisted on its own doing its thing and IndyCars always coexisted on its own in a separate vertical and now you'd have to add Formula E mm. to that so I don't think any of them are actually in competition with each other and it really really winds me up when we go to Lamar and there's all these sports car journalists and all these people in sports cars who are constantly bashing F1 
And it's like, you know what? You don't need to do that. Just talk about your positives. Talk about what's good about your series. Talk about what's good about um, your category. And you don't need to be bashing Formula E or Formula One or whatever. Mm. You know, you can all coexist. There's no problem there. Um, and you all achieve totally different things. You know, Formula E is about the manufacturers having a platform to develop their technology for the future because they believe the future is going to be EV uh, mobility, you know. So I'm no automotive industry expert, but the, the manufacturers seem to believe that way. So they're going, they're going down that route. Formula One should always be and has always been the pinnacle of our sport. And that, to me, means it's as much about entertaining fans of racing and motorsport as it is about innovation and technology. Yeah, sure, there's going to be some carryover to the road car world, always has been. But I think F1's at a crossroads now where it needs to decide, is it going to be about having the best cars, which are loud and fast and, and drivers who are the, the absolute best in the world, your Hamiltons, your Alonzos, your Vettels, you know, your your next generations of Verstappens and Ocons, you know, the best drivers in the world should aspire to be in Formula One and should be in Formula One. Um, and that should be the fastest cars on the planet. And then you've got sports car racing, which is a test of endurance. Um, again, an opportunity for manufacturers to take part and, and use it for R&D or marketing. Um, and and it's, it creates genuinely interesting racing. You know, Le Mans is a magical event. And in general, sports car racing is is very very competitive and really enjoyable i think um on 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 the i had to pick up on the the loud sound the loud noise because i don't on on f1 i've noticed and i don't think it's particularly a good thing that you have your top drivers constantly berating the sound of the the engines or or i I think but it's it's in as he says it's in an impossible position because they have to fulfill the manufacturer's requests because they're the ones putting the money in and that leads me quite nicely to um, your recent experiences with the Williams from 1992, the V10. Um, I was there in Silverstone when you tested it for the William, Williams sort of birthday celebrations. What was that like as an experience? Because when it came out of the pits, I was in the audience and everyone was like, oh, what is this? I, don't, I, I must admit, I must say, I don't think it was a great idea sticking the uh, 2014 Williams out with it because it just... The sound was so enveloping, and then this sort of car was behind it that wasn't making much noise. And I was like, "Oh man, maybe keep those separate." But how was that driving that? I mean, that must have been incredible. Uh, it was very emotional because you know I, I grew up watching F1 in the late '80s, early '90s, and and you know back when that car came out and Nigel won the world championship. You know, I dreamt of driving that car as an eight-year-old. You know, I for me the cars from 91, 92, 93, they are, the, the, and the 1990 Ferrari as well. You know, that, that window is where my favorite cars of Formula One of all time have come from. So to drive the most dominant car of that era, um, and not, you know, not just once, I've now driven it on multiple occasions and, uh, and actually got to do quite a few laps with it in the wet and the dry and all sorts. It's just magical, really. Absolutely. Um, it's such a just you know you you get in a car and it feels right, 
feels balanced. It does everything you want to do. It's light as well. You know, 505 kilos um, plus the drivers, so call it 580. Um, you know, in contrast with the modern cars, which are way up at 730, it's going to be this year. Uh, you know, 150 kilos. That's the weight difference. You know, you're talking, if you work on the old equation of 10 kilos being three tenths of a second, uh, so 30 kilos, roughly nine tenths, uh, we're talking four and a half seconds in just weight between that car and a modern car, you know. Um, so it, it felt light, it felt nimble, it felt agile, and the power was just immense. Um, we did a little shakedown before going to Silverstone on a runway. and I'd driven lots of cars um, up and down that runway before, but this thing was something else. It just blew my mind. So, um, yeah, no, very emotional. And obviously, I, I'm glad I got to spend a bit of time with um, uh, Paddy Lowe and, and Sir Patrick Head um, just to talk about how the active suspension worked and the philosophy of it. And uh, I spent some time with both Nigel and Ricardo um, as well. I went to see Nigel at the Isle of Man um, and spent a day with him there. Uh, and, and therefore, I felt quite informed getting into the car you know how you're going to feel it move and and those because they're slightly unnatural feelings but the car was it, it is so far ahead of its time you know it had a blown diffuser um traction control launch control um you know the active suspension obviously uh, just a, a very you know, when you look back at the history of formula one uh, the you know revolutionary cars it's going to be in your top five. Yeah, it's 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 almost too perfect because the dimensions are correct. Because I know in '93 they went narrower cars than that. For me, '92 is like mm. well '90. Well, no, the '1990 Ferrari, the '91 McLaren, and the '92 Williams yeah. are my sort of three. Yeah. I think if if you if that's what you start watching, it tends to be what you find the best looking. But yeah. I found the just how does it. How does it compare driving something of that era to the modern era? Like, I mean, I drove this year's last year's car. I drove the 2017 FW40 on the same day. So it was a pretty unique experience, actually, to drive two cars 25 years apart um, within two hours of each other. Um, and it's just very different. You know, the driving the 2017 car is very similar to cars that I've driven uh, more recently. Um, okay, it's got more downforce and bigger tires and all the rest of it, and it's it's therefore quicker. But fundamentally, you know, you're sitting in a in a in a monocoque that looks vaguely familiar to to all the other cars that I've driven in the last six seven years. Um, you know, the 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 sensations you get are all filtered. They come through a power steering. Um, so the field of steering is really different to the 14B. Um, the, the feeling you have through the, the throttle and the brake, everything is just filtered through the electronics. You know, it's not, it's not a pure sensation, which is what you get with the older car. It's a bit like going from digital to analog world, really, in some ways. Um, but what is immense with the current cars is the power. Um, you know, the, the, the current, v6 hybrids you know the the power is just unbelievable 
And when it, and also I think the electronics, the systems guys have done an excellent job because you have the, you know, you have the the internal combustion engine, and then you've got the ERS um, power, um, and the way one blends with the other, you can't really really tell the difference between when one's on and one's off. You know, the the blend um, the the blend strategies that they use are incredible, really, and therefore it gives it fantastic drivability. Um, and I think you know that that's something that is. It, it it is uh, pretty amazing, but the downside is obviously the sound of it. You know, it's you you don't have the big screaming fifteen eighteen. Well, BMW days was twenty thousand RPM. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's a, there's a few differences. Yeah, I, that was that was what I was saying like earlier that having them out on track at the same time really highlighted. Yeah, because it it just I mean it was it just drowned it out. Yeah, yeah, it was like it, and it it, still, it feels kind of weird because the night it's a ninety two car and it's kind of a bit weird that that's a bit more of a show. But um, I wanted to talk about your thoughts on drivers and and the future of who you think's uh, going to dominate the sport. I mean, I'm personally a big fan of Max Verstappen. Like I followed him when I he think was the whole planet is really. yeah. I followed him in KF three when he was a junior. Yeah. Then um, I proper converted. <laughs> I converted to, to the religion of Max Verstappen when he raced at PFI in Lincoln in, in KEF2, I think it was back then. Um, but what he was doing then, he was beating the top KZ guys. And what I noticed with some drivers is from, from who come into cars and they have these stellar karting records, they don't tell you that they didn't race the Ardegos and the, you know, the Pexes or the Decontos and the the forays they sort of jumped into cars before they had a chance but Verstappen would race them and beat them when he like he won the 2013 World Championship in KZ um, so obviously I'm a big fan as you can tell how do you think the sport is gonna lie with sort of the new talent coming through because Ocon as well is is had a good season yeah no I think you you know you've got a lot of good talent on there um, you know you'd have to say that. Alonso, Raikkonen, Hamilton, um, they'd all probably be gone in four years, maybe, three to four years. Um, but then you've got uh, Van Dorn, Ricardo, obviously you mentioned Verstappen and Ocon. Um, you know, you've got a lot of, of lot of talent there. Leclerc has just arrived uh, at Sauber. I think he's a very, very good talent. I think Gasly's very good as well. Um, so I'll be interested to see how he gets on this year. Sainz, Hulkenberg, um, you know, the, 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 you've got some really, really top talent in Formula One. Um, and then you've got, you know, people knocking on the door. You know, you've got Lando Norris, you've got George Russell. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good talent. Um, hovering around really and I think um, yeah and I think that's what F1 as I said before I think that's what F1 should be it should be the home for the best talent in, in the sport yeah I think I've always had a, it's kind of a weird love-hate thing with F1 because sometimes you've got the best drivers and then you might have a few drivers in there that you're like I don't know should they be there I don't know but it's F1 is F1 you get there you get there and that's it 
that's that's the that's the game um but as i said like the verstappen thing i i i i mean I, max is a once in a generation talent mm. you know ever so often if you look back at the history of the sport ever so often there was one amazing talent that came along every 6 8 10 years you know you had let's say you had fangio moss um jimmy clark jackie stewart um you know nikki lauda alan prost then you had senna um then you had schumacher then you had sort of raikkonen and alonso arrived together in 2001 um and then you had lewis come 2007 um and then you've got max you know and uh as i say every ever so often you get these once in a generation standout talents and what i really hope is that max gets the car that his talent deserves so that he can deliver on that promise you know because if he the day he gets a world championship contender that's when i'll be fascinated to see how he gets on you know wheel to wheel with lewis and vettel and um and ricardo fighting for the world championship because you know i think he's proven that he's got incredible maturity to dominate races you know his wins in malaysia and mexico were brilliant absolutely brilliant and that you know forget barcelona last year <laughs> he had kimi breathing down his neck for the entire grand prix distance um you know and he was he was there he was calm and he was cool and it was his first race at red bull and what a fairy tale hmm. um you know so he's proven he can deal with the pressure and the next step is to see you know uh, how he how he deals with trying to win a world championship against these guys hmm. i think um one thing i noted about verstappen this is especially true in karts was as soon as he he had a 10th no one ever got it back as soon as he nudged ahead there was never i'd never witnessed a time where he nudged ahead in a qualifying or or and then people caught him back up it was always like once he was there he would improve at the same rate as everyone else and that was it and to see it reflected in f1 my, my belief is if he gets a good car i think yeah it will be very tough to keep with him um but to finish on karun um what's your future in in racing what have you got planned because you've obviously done the sports car stuff as well you're yeah. a bit formulary what what what's planned what's what's planned for you yeah also sorry uh, i'm wearing lots of different hats um i'd i'd like to be doing more sports car stuff for the moment so um i'm i'm speaking to a couple of teams and trying to trying to lock down a drive for for lemon and and some some stuff in the european lemon series hopefully um but it's a hard market out there so i don't know i'm i'm hoping it happens um and if it doesn't then then it'll be a shame but that's life um you know fortunately i uh you know in order to make sure i i can earn a, a living out of the sport um i sort of diversified my time and um so i'll go i'll go to all the grand prix with channel 4 um obviously if anything clashes with with racing in le mans like canada would do i'd i'd miss that but otherwise i'm going to go to all of that um we've got a few fun projects with williams again so we're doing all sorts of um bits and pieces we are um uh going to be at the monaco historic we're going to be at goodwood we're going to be doing um you know a bunch of events through the year and now that business has actually um grown you know we've sold 
uh, five or six cars at the back end of 2017. And now we're, we're going to be going to America and other parts of Europe to run the cars and driver coaches, drivers and things. So it's quite good fun to be involved um, with Williams Heritage from a business standpoint. You know, Jonathan Williams, who runs it, is a, is a great friend of mine. And we just have fun with it. And it's a, it's a great fun project for us to do together. Um, and beyond that, uh, I'm managing two young drivers. Um, Arjun Maini will be in Formula 2 this year. Uh, and his younger brother Kush will be in British Formula Three, so those um, we got those two, uh, and I'm also now um, working with a circuit design company, designing racetracks, um, which is quite good fun actually. Um, you know we've we um, we and, and not just race circuits, but we've just we've just done a rallycross track um, out in India, um, and we've done a um, um, a circuit which hopefully will start construction um, at the end of this year out in Asia. So, yeah, no, it's um, there's a lot of interesting little projects. No, it's a good lesson for everybody listening. You know, don't <laughs> don't pigeonhole yourself because the nature of the no, game, it's, you've, it's, got, you've got to diversify it, what you're doing. Exactly. And, and to be honest, I learned that from, from Coulthard. Um, you know, David was obviously a, a very good racing driver. Um, you know, I was a big fan of DCs when he was racing in Formula 3 and... Um, and you know when he won Macau and stuff when he the the year he won Macau in 1990 was the first ever race I saw live actually 1991 sorry is the first ever race I saw live on TV uh, in India so um, I was always a, a bit of a, a fan of DC's and and now having gotten to know him and, and work with him and, and see him at close quarters I've realized that you know, it, there's there's a big lesson in in the way he runs his life. You know, he's got he's always got deals on the go. He's always got a finger in a few different pies. He's always diversifying and looking for different business interests, and never puts all his eggs into one basket. Um, and that's a, I think it's a very smart way. If you're in the motorsport industry, I think that's a really important and smart lesson there. Um, so yeah, no, I I I really respect and admire how DC operates that part of his life. Well, thanks for coming today, Karun. It's massively appreciated. No, thank um, you very much. Yeah. It's been fun to see uh, your simulator here and uh, have a little go. And um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's been nice to come down. Thank you.